1: Welcome to another episode of your Missing the Point podcast where we discuss the weird, the wonderful and the downright bizarre aspects of our life as we have conversations with people from around the country and across the globe all around the world. Today we are joined by Tammy Jax. Tammy is a, is someone who I connected with in the Homesteader community on Telegram specifically through the Deborah Gets Red Bill t- Telegram channel and that group. Uh, seeing all the information that she was sharing with everyone and all the wealth of information that she has. This was someone that I just absolutely knew I had to speak with and get on for a conversation. Tammy is an attorney, a homesteader, a yoga guide and much, much more. Welcome, Tammy.
0: Hi, how are you, Drew? Nice to finally meet you.
1: Yeah, it's great to finally on face-to-face. Yeah, that's it. It's, you, you miss so much when you're just typing on a little screen, don't we?
0: That's true. <laughs> we we don't have that same that same connection. So... This is
1: awesome. That's definitely not. All right. Now, by your own words, you describe yourself as an enigma, wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in a burrito. And that is one of the most <laughs> hilarious self-descriptions I have ever heard.
0: Uh yeah. the the burrito part being the 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 main part.
1: <laughs> you can't go past a good burrito, that's for sure. <laughs> Okay. um, Can we just start off by getting a a bit of your life story? Where are you from? What do you do? A bit of your early life. Try and paint a picture for listeners and give us a bit of background behind you if that's okay.
0: Sure. Um, That's a a, a big task. So (laughs) um, I live in Florida. Um, I've lived in Florida most of my life. Um, I came from North Carolina. I am in the US and um, I grew up in a household where I did not learn how to cook or can or garden. Um, my dad um, owned his own business and he was a, a little league coach, and we spent most of our nights at the baseball stadiums um, watching my brother play and my dad coach. So uh, I grew up on hot dogs and spaghettios, <laughs> so convenient foods. Um, and then I was in college, um, and I was pregnant with my first child, and I, I don't even remember exactly how I got hooked up with this crunchy granola uh, midwifery community, um, but I uh, started um, when I was pregnant with my son. I wanted to do a natural birth, and so I found a midwife. Um, I started uh, teaching Lamaze classes, um, childbirth classes, uh, learning how to make my own granola and things like that. So, so that was kind of my gateway drug into this lifestyle. I, um, I was, I went to law school. I was a probation officer for a while. And then I, I went to law school after starting my career and having children. So I was a a little bit of a late bloomer in that respect. And, um, I was working as a lawyer when September 11th happened here in the U.S., and that's when I started. I mean, I feel like I've always kind of been um, a red-pilled conspiracy theorist, and this this may sound a little weird, but I know you're into the cryptids and things, so, <laughs> so I know you can handle a little dose of weird, um, but my whole life, uh, ever since I was a very young child, I've had apocalyptic dreams. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Um, <clears throat> I feel like my dream world has kind of been preparing me for the world we live in now. Um, and and like, I always found that I had this weird, innate knowledge. Like I can be walking in the woods and come up on, on a tree or a plant and without having any experience with it, like I know exactly what it is. Um, and, and it's just like with this bizarre uh, I, talent <laughs> I guess, <laughs> that I have, Um and, uh, so I don't know, I don't know how much I believe in past lives or things like that. Um, but I do feel connected to this world in a different way than most people <laughs> that I meet, um, on a daily basis. But, um, September 11th, we'll go back to that September 11th, 2001. Um, I was working as an attorney. Um, we had that horrible, uh, attack or maybe not, um, on the world trade center and that kind of. We were living in town, and I knew at that point in time that the world was going to change for us. And so we started looking for property. We bought um, five acres that had this. This is a really long story. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I, was Keep going. About, I, was, I was worried about um, feeling comfortable talking, but clearly that's not the case. Although I am, <laughs> the one, I am usually the one asking the questions. Um, but we moved out to the country. Um, we bought an acreage that had a nasty trailer on it where we lived with our six children while we built our own house and we started um, raising goats and we had horses and I started um, you know growing my own food then and then our kids all graduated from our high school and they went off to um, their careers and their families. And so we sold off all the goats, we sold off all the horses. And I really started focusing on my career, hardcore. I mean, I've always focused on my career. But then we found ourselves in 2020, I was um, working as a prosecutor, I was prosecuting homicide cases um, here in our local area. And I just, even before this whole, illness, (laughs) contrived illness hit, I started feeling a call to live my life a little differently. And um, so actually, I gave my notice um, at the prosecutor's office on March 9th, not knowing that the whole world was going to shut down (laughs) by the following week. Um, So I had decided to leave the government job, um, Open up my own law practice right when the whole world shut down. So it was perfect timing. So I found myself bored um, without much to do and also facing some insecurities. (laughs) So I started getting chickens and growing, you know, uh, um, doing some raised bed gardening. Um, And then that was the gateway to goats. And now I'm even raising my own meat birds. And um, also rabbits for meat, and trying to live as self-sufficiently as possible. <laughs> um, so, so that's kind of the nutshell. I, I'm learning to can. I'm learning to ferment, um, and I, I've been fermenting for a while. I, I, I've been making kombucha for years and years. Um, but you know, Lanny, I know Lanny and Chad, that, that was your first podcast, right? That was,
1: yeah, very. It was. It was absolutely fantastic to have them on.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Are you going to be able to do the fermenting workshop in the next?
1: I will be. I actually had a chat with Lani about it's just with the time zones. It always happens to be, it's a Monday for me in my part of the world. And as a teacher, I just can't have a day off to do a fermenting course unless it lined up with our school holidays, but she was actually able to do a Friday afternoon for a lot of people who aren't able to attend. And that's going to be fantastic.
0: Well, I can't wait to see um, what kinds of ferments that you start. We have our own little telegram group over there where we're all sharing pictures ah, of nice. what, we're, what we're making. So I look forward to to seeing what, what you come up with. So, awesome. so that's me.
1: Awesome. Six so,
0: kids, 11 grandkids. It's a full life.
1: <laughs> and what I glean from that that condensed version of a life, and like you said, it's, it's so hard to try and tell your story in such a, a short, brief period of time, but you did really well. What I glean from that is that, you're someone who who grew up not having the knowledge and the skills that you do now, that you came from a, a family of what I would assume would probably be upper middle class, where your father was a business owner. You weren't terribly poor, but you weren't extremely wealthy. And you've kind of grown and developed over your life from influences of the outside world. Like you said, you have the, almost like that that sense of precognition of the things that might be coming in the future and that's kind of guided you a little bit the events of 9-11 which had a massive impact on everyone around the world not just Americans and you had that guttural sense that something might be changing and it kind of kicked you in the butt a little bit to make a change in your life and that's what you've done you've changed what you're doing in your life for the better of your kids and your family and yourself which is fantastic it's almost like you knew you needed that personal growth in other areas.
0: True, I think you you nailed it. You nailed it, Drew.
1: <laughs> um, just going back, your career. What made you become an attorney? Especially um, being pregnant with your your first, and then attending university at that stage. What made you go that direction?
0: Well, I, because I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I I actually I was I was going to school, getting my prerequisites for medical school. Um, and then I just started seeing the handwriting on the wall. Like if I go to medical school, that's four more years of school, um, all those internships where I'll be working, you know, long hours, not getting paid very much. And, and my family's going to continue to be poor for like the next 10 years (laughs) to advance my career. And, um, and then my brother-in-law and I'm also a very competitive person. So my brother-in-law was taking the law school admission test and uh, i was like you know maybe i'll take that um cuz i wanted to see if i could do better than than he did <laughs> so i took the law school admission test um i did really well and i'm like oh i can be done in 3 years so <laughs> i applied i got in and here we are 20 something years later so well
1: there you go a uh, bit of a synchronicity i myself was studying medicine at one point through the australian royal air force to become a medic okay. and like much like yourself i had that kind of a gut feeling that something was changing and it just so happened to coincide. I met my wife at that time and my priorities in life kind of changed. So I left the military, started my teaching degree and, and that's where I am now. But yeah, like like you said, it's it's interesting how like clearly you've got a caring point behind you and that's why you wanted to go into medicine yourself. And even as an attorney, I dare say you wanted to bring about some kind of change somewhere in what you're doing.
0: Yeah. I feel like, um, I, the, the, the attraction for the criminal justice field, um, I think is just like a, an innate sense of, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna say justice because I think justice is a very elusive term, um, but I had a heart for people who had been victimized. And so the majority of my career I've worked as a prosecutor. Um, you know, I've prosecuted sex crimes, I've prosecuted homicides. And, and so I really feel fortunate that I've been able to stand by people during the most horrific times of their lives and kind of support them. And, um, it was, it was out of that, that constant drain on me personally, that caused me to, uh, to go and do my yoga teacher training. <laughs> so that I could, uh, I could add that to my repertoire. And so I feel like I do a lot of healing, both in my lawyer job and in my yoga teaching job. And now in my third job of, of, um, you know, growing food and helping other people to to learn how to grow their food, how to, um, you know, manage their time so that they can balance a career and still doing something um, positive for yourself and just generally being an ambassador to say you don't have a black thumb you can do this And, and you know kind of giving that them that encouraging push.
1: So when you're talking about the aspects of when you had your career as attorney that it was was it almost like you were seeing the worst 3% of the population 80% of the time. And is that what you found that wore you down?
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, I I still practice criminal defense. And so (laughs) I am still you know, seeing the, you know, people going through the most horrible situations in their life. And, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a heavy burden. Um, that's why I love, love, love being in my garden and out with my goats and, and animals so much, because it is a, distra- a distraction and escape from all of that.
1: Fantastic. You alluded to yoga before now, which I mentioned at the start. So, Tell me how you got into yoga. It was something you wanted to almost heal yourself and have a, that distraction, something away from what's happening in, yep. in your professional life. How did you get into yoga? How did that start?
0: Um, in, let's see. In 2016, I think um, one of my friends invited me to a yoga class. They offered Uh, 90 days, 90 day yoga challenge, 90 yoga classes in 90 days for $90. So um, I for that 90 days, I had to adjust my daily schedule in order to make classes. And through that process, I learned that I could because I mean, with with six kids, and my career, um, I never really took very much time for myself. So that yoga challenge in 2016, taught me how to carve out that, that time um, to dedicate to myself. And when I would be there on the mat in yoga class, my brain would actually saddle. I mean, you know, the brain is always going, 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 going a thousand miles a minute, worrying about a thousand things. And so yoga first taught me how to calm the thoughts, to find that um, meditative space where I could control the speed of those thoughts constantly coming in. Um, and I had never been a runner before. I always always thought I couldn't run, but after I started the yoga practice, then I learned that I could run. And then I started running um, competitively and, and both of those practices have helped me to train my, my brain and help me get out of my head and uh, have made me a lot better mentally. Which has been a good skill to have for the last two years. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Definitely, I, I always see and I hear. I, I'm not personally. I, I I don't participate in yoga or anything like that at all. But I'm very big for looking after self and well-being. So I can see the aspects of it that probably I should take on board myself because I I'm the biggest person who stresses myself out. I'll admit that. When you when the, you started the yoga process, that 90 days for 90 dollars, what a deal! <laughs> and you start exactly. that process and you start to see those physical changes of yes now I actually can run so there's a lot of psychological stuff going on there where it's the I can't where in life we almost have to have that yet attached to it I can't yet and that power of the word yet just because you can't do it now doesn't mean you can't do it in the future and by the sounds of it, yoga really opened that up for you aside from the physical side of things where you're able to do um, go into running, and I dare say your flexibility improved and your health and your mental well being. Did you get and develop any kind of a spiritual growth or connection through yoga at all?
0: I, I feel like I've always been um, a spiritual person. Um, I mean, I grew up in a very fundamental religious, you know, Christian religious um, background that uh, was very rigid. Um, very rule based. And, and I feel like in my adult life, I've become a lot more of a rebel. Um, And I pushed away from, from the religion, but I never stepped really away from spirituality. And um, I think what yoga did for, so I, when I teach my yoga classes, I always talk about that yoga is where science meets woo. (laughs) So (laughs) um, (laughs) yeah, for, for me, yoga is more Um, like if you think about chakras, so um, chakra system and our body, seven main chakras in the body, they start at the, uh, the base of the spine, the root chakra, they come up through the sacral, the belly is Manipura chakra or solar plexus chakra. That's your space for willpower and motivation. You come up to the heart chakra, love, compassion, forgiveness, generosity, throat, your truth, your voice, um third eye, and then your crown chakra, they, the different chakras also line up with your spinal column. And so like, if you think about um, the heart chakra, it's the arms, it's the chest, it's the heart, it's the lungs. So when you're doing heart opening chakra opening poses, you're really working into the shoulders. And so I, I always, I, I don't see yoga so much as a spiritual practice for me personally as um therapy for my body like I'm an inside out massage <laughs> and so um I I really work on chakra based um, yoga practice, but it really is b- more about how the body, the the chakras line up with the spinal system and how that innervates the different parts of our body. If that makes any sense at all, I invite you to come to one of my yoga classes, and it tends to flow a little better as I'm guiding you through the <laughs> the postures. I'll um, give it a
1: go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, but I I really see it more as um, a method of healing the body. Um, my friend gave me a book and I haven't started it yet. It's that um, it talks about trauma and how trauma impacts the body. And I think that that's really true. And so for me, yoga has been about um, learning how to open up spaces so that energy can flow better and um, to release some of that long held trauma.
1: Great. In yoga, I find that, I think the biggest thing that turns people on, and this is just my personal story, is that I grew up very much rural Australian, traditional home, um, religious but not practising, the, the generic Australian experience. And with that, and it's probably the same way in a lot of Western countries, that when we've looked at things like yoga and kundalini and all these things, it is seen as woo-woo and and it's perceived in media as people who engage in yoga, they have dreadlocks and they've got crystals and they've got all these things. But the more and more I've gone on my own journey of understanding knowledge, a lot of these things are actually making sense. And if I could speak to myself 10, 15 years ago, I would probably picture myself as being uh, a hippie who's barefoot walking around in the garden, doing things I wouldn't have done then. Uh, (laughs) Did did you find that there was any kind of uh, social stigma or anything you got from family members or friends when you started this journey yourself?
0: (laughs) Not really. Um I, I uh... I tend to be, like I said, in the very beginning, like I am an ambassador. Um, it doesn't matter what it is. Once I catch the bug for something, then I never shut up about it. So my husband started calling me the yoga pusher. Um, but <laughs> last summer, yeah, he's, he's like, you're worse than a drug dealer. Like just, just stop. <laughs> Cause every time like he would say, Oh, my back hurts. I'm like, Oh, you need to come to yoga with me. And that, you know, so that's how I am with, with all of my friends, any ailment they have, you need yoga. Um, and so last summer I challenged him to a 30 day, yo- it was a 30 day yoga challenge, 30 days of yoga every day. Cause he just wasn't feeling good. Um, we had both gained a lot of weight during uh, the pandemic and Haven't um, we all? <laughs> it was 30 days of yoga, um, no beer, uh, and this was last June and July. And so I made a, I made a bargain with him that he could have beer on our 4th of July our independence day celebration. Um, and, and he did it. And it's funny because he was a Lieutenant at, at the the local police department here. And, um, so he invited all of the guys, he, he supervised the detective division. So he invited all these tough, you know, police officer guys. Most of them are like, uh, former Marines. I'm, I, am i am I apologize to all of the marines out there I know you're not former Marines you're always Marines um, <laughs> but he he invited all these tough tatted up guys to come to yoga with him one day and and the yoga that I practice is not my husband used to call it glorified sleeping um, that is not the kind of yoga that I practice um, it's a very intense um, it's hot yoga so I mean you're sweating buckets I probably lose eight pounds (laughs) during a hot yoga class. So he had all of these beefy cop guys come um, that that work out and they do all of this stuff. So they came to yoga and um, oh my gosh, when that class was over, they hit the door. They're like, I'm never fucking doing that again. (laughs) They said it was the hardest thing that they've ever done. Um, So no, I I don't really think that there's a social stigma. I, when I, I started running with the run group, and so during the pandemic, I was teaching nine yoga classes a week, um, before pandemic. And then in the U S, um, they shut down all the gyms, all the yoga studios, all the bars. <laughs> and, um, so I started offering yoga classes at my home on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday mornings. Um, because if, you know, if you are a runner, Um, you know, the hips get tight, the body gets really, really stiff from that constant impact. So um, when we got driven out of the gyms, we started practicing under my barn. So we called it barn yoga. And, um, but no, I don't feel like I have gotten any stigma um, from it. I mean, because people People who know me, they already know I'm a, not a conventional, I'm not the, the conventional thing that you think of when you think attorney. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a little different, <laughs> which I think. You know, and I want to say that, Drew, you must be a weirdo too because <laughs> I feel like we all attract each other and that Deborah Gets Red Pilled Telegram group, um, you know, I love the weirdos there, including you. So. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thanks. I've got a bit of an analogy for for people like ourselves. We're packeted chip people. When you buy packet of chips, there's all the normal chips that are full and complete at the top and all the, the broken chips or the, the small ones, they all find themselves and clump in the corner of the packet. <laughs> It's almost like a pack of chip people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Florida. Tell me about Florida. I went to Florida when I was 21. Absolutely loved it. I found that when I went there, Everglades were amazing, the world's slowest moving river, which I found was completely fascinating. Out of everywhere in the United States I went to, I drank the water in Florida, and I broke out in the worst hives of my life, and I don't know what it was. Completely circumstantial, but... That's what I found when I went to Florida. Otherwise, beautiful weather, great people. What, how would you describe Florida as a state for anyone? Who's Wild. For Wild. 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 Wild.
0: Um, I think when most people think of Florida, they think of these beautiful, pristine beaches. Um, they think of the cities like Miami or Orlando or Tampa where you know there's activity um, going on and like people are tanned. And uh, you know, I, I actually don't know what people think of when they think of Florida, but that's not how I see Florida. <laughs> um I spend a lot of time um out in nature. I think Florida is absolutely beautiful. Um, When I get out on a kayak and you're out there and you see a gator that's able to eat you in literally one chomp that's just a few feet away from your paddle and you look up in the trees and you see, Um, great herons, Um, just the, the wildlife is like no other place. Um, I'm sure you, uh, you experienced that in Australia too, because your wildlife is like no other place. Um, But, uh, you know, I can be kayaking or hiking and it's, I call it my cathedral. Um, I'll be out in the woods and in Florida, um, we have Spanish moss that hangs from cypress trees, and everything just has kind of a, a gothic, scary look to it. Um, but it, it, like, when I'm out there in that wild nature, I just feel at home. Um, but I think when you get in town, it's also wild because Florida is a place and I'll give you an example. I, my office, I have to come to my office to, um, to do anything on the internet because I, I live out in the boonies and so I don't get internet service. So I'm sitting here in my office. Um, it's right downtown. Uh, it's about, well, it's eight 30 here. And so there's folks that are walking to the bars and walking to restaurants, but there's a, a little bar around the corner and uh, it has an outdoor, uh, outdoor, it's an outdoor music venue. And it's the only place where you can go and see a black guy in a fedora dancing with an elderly white woman in in a wheelchair um, <laughs> next to a person wearing a Hawaiian shirt. I mean, it's just like the most random and bizarre Place that I've that I've ever been um, in Florida. We have a saying that I think our state motto is "The rules are different here," which is absolutely true. Um, I am very grateful for that because um, I don't want to get into politics or anything <laughs> like that. But at least our governor here, um, Governor DeSantis, has kept um, businesses open. He's protected us from uh, forced uh, medical procedures <laughs> and things like that. And so we have definitely um, weathered this two plus year storm um, better than than most folks. So I love Florida. Um, it's it's wild and crazy. We can grow things here literally all year round. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, you and I were talking earlier this week, um, chatting about things that you can grow in your area I think your your um gardening zone is very similar to mine so I think you're you're in one of those same situations where you can garden all year round and I love 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 looking at your garden but I think that um where your garden is so neat and orderly and and beautiful mine is wild just like just like my love for Florida Um, nothing I don't grow anything in rows everything is kind of just thrown together um flowers and with the vegetables and things growing up on trellises things growing in front and I just walk out there and I'm like you know it I think my garden reflects what happens in here in my heart um completely disorganized um and but yet there's there's an innate beauty amidst all of that disorganization
1: <laughs> and that's what I love though. I think that's where I want to eventually direct my growing and and self, self-sustainable practices towards is is having it grow a bit more wild I'm currently living in what would be like considered a a housing estate type of area where you know it's the all the young people have just built their first brand new house and you've got the average backyard and I'm trying to make it be self-sustainable while conforming to those norms or making it look normal from the outside and hiding what I've got within the backyard should anything happen Uh, the farm where my wife's family ancestral farm is where my father-in-law is that's wild it's you go out there, there hasn't been a tree that's been cut or pruned for over 60 years. My, my late mother-in-law, she wouldn't touch a, a tree or cut them and I've recently gone in to do some pruning to get some growth back after it stagnated a bit, but it's so much work, but I'm looking forward to it and, and having that the permaculture and, and things going where I can grow sustainably, in a like a wild forest. That's going to be great. I can't wait for that journey. But at the moment, yeah, like you said, my guard beds are very regimented straight down the line. Probably my autism spectrum probably coming up that I probably do have, but don't know about it. Uh, Yeah, it's just very organized. And that's the way mine kind of looks at the moment. As for, let's talk about plants. We're on that topic now. As for plants, what was the very first vegetable you grew and had success with?
0: Oh, wow. That's a really good question. I have to think about that one. Um. I honestly can't think of what the first successful plant would have been. Um, I can tell you what. Um, <laughs> there's a loud cars going by. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. um, the most prolific plant that I've planted, um, and I think I told you about this um, in our little our little chat this week, is Seminole pumpkin. Uh, Seminole pumpkin, um, it, it loves the heat uh, and we have no shortage of that. So um, it's a heat loving plant and um, it, it will just, my, my intention was to grow it over the chicken house so that it would shade the chickens and um, it, it wouldn't grow over by the chicken house. So I planted some um, over on a on a fence and so it grew up over the fence covered the whole fence i mean i planted like one plant and it grew over a hundred feet in like both directions and i trained it um up on up on this fence and you know you have these beautiful pumpkins that um i've done everything with those pumpkins i've uh frozen pumpkins, I've made pie, I've made soup. I dehydrated the pumpkins. I made pumpkin powder for smoothies. I de- I roasted and dehydrated the um seeds and um made uh pumpkin seed powder for my uh my animals because it's a, a good natural um it's a like a demor it's a nat- natural dewormer and it's also really high in magnesium so that's also good to like it kind of has a similar flavor to like maybe a brewer's yeast or something like that so you can sprinkle it on top of salads um to add magnesium and magnesium is a natural antidepressant too Ah, So (laughs) there we go
1: so my first successful crop was iceberg lettuce of all things i thought if i can't grow iceberg lettuce there's something wrong with me so we put iceberg lettuce in and i overwhelmed the gut raised garden beds with iceberg lettuce to the point where they were that close together just to see what i could do and ironically it happened just before australia hit a major shortage in in leafy greens like at the moment the price of iceberg lettuce in australia is 12 dollars at its highest so doing the math we've eaten over 540 dollars worth of like iceberg lettuce it's ridiculous
0: I know I did I saw you had posted on your Instagram like uh that a head of lettuce was like nine ninety nine. And so I'm like, how how much is that in US dollars? It was like six like sixteen dollars, I think US twelve yeah. it's crazy. Crazy. Yeah, and
1: it happened overnight too. It just oh, it was the floods that we had in North Queensland. I'm like, but there's lettuce grown all over Australia and we produce three times what we can consume. So <laughs> where's the lettuce? <laughs>
0: But you're funny, Drew, you said, if I can't grow iceberg lettuce, then what's wrong with me? I have, I cannot grow lettuce. So what's wrong with me?
1: (laughs) Is it, is it,
0: is it your climate? Is it too humid for lettuce? Is that? I, I think it's just so beastly hot and it is Mm -hmm. very humid. So um, I have maybe a four week window where I can grow lettuce. And, and like, I do have like a, I have some tower gardens. So I grew a little bit of lettuce in there, um, but I just get like these little, little tiny, um, heads. I can pick off a few leaves to, to put on a burger or a sandwich, <laughs> um, but I'm not making a salad out of that. Now I do grow other greens that I can, um, use for salad. And then, um, you're talking about permaculture. Um, well, I have a friend, Lonnie, um, not Lanny but uh Lonnie Reed he has a uh he basically has a permaculture nursery and um so he's my permaculture guru and so he has helped me to um find some other things that I can grow for for lettuce and greens um like there's a what is it called the captain something south seas salad tree so I have a salad tree that grows and it has these um these leaves and the leaves kind of taste citrusy. Um, Roselle or cranberry hibiscus, they have a really pretty rosy color leaf and um, those you can eat as salad greens and they have kind of a citrusy flavor too. Um, And then some spinach doesn't grow well here because it's so hot. So, um, there are, there's like Okinawa spinach and longevity spinach, some different like permaculture spinaches that are suited to our climate. Um, they're more like a ground cover than, um, like the traditional spinach that you think of, but, um, that dandelion greens, mizuna, uh, things like that, um, grow well here. And I think that's that's a key that a lot of people don't take into account when they start growing, they just wanna go to their big box store and buy whatever seeds are um, on that that, that seed rack, um, some of which just aren't suited to your growing area. And so I think that's one of the keys that people need to learn what kind of grows native for them and then they'll have a whole lot more success.
1: And it's even looking at the ones that are, are suited to your climate or to your growth zone that there's no guarantee that they're going to grow the way you expect. It's almost like within the first two or three generations of growing something that that's still acclimatizing to your part of your climate. You've got microclimates everywhere. I live in a valley where we have we've traditionally had three uh, coal fire powered stations. We've got two now with two soon to be shut down. Since they went up, and all the old-time farmers will talk about this, our area in the valley was traditionally a swampland. It was very wet. You couldn't grow vegetables because it was so moist and the plants would just rot and get root rot. Ever since the power stations went in, it's created a microclimate where everything's dried off. In the past, uh, farmers originally had sheep and it got so wet that they could hold sheep here. As soon as the power stations went in, everyone moved over to beef. So I'm really looking into the future. At, I've acclimatized my plants at the moment. I'm collecting seeds that, they, that each yield's going to get stronger and better and they'll adapt. But in the same time, I'm trying to keep in mind what happens if things in the area become wet and I need things that can tolerate that moisture. That's why your suggestion of some of your vegetables that we had a chat about recently could actually work in some of those trees because they're swamp-based. So that might be something that I can use in the future.
0: Yeah, the roselle and the cranberry hibiscus, all of them, anything in the mallow family, I think is, you know, they're they're raised, they, they originally came from the swamps. So that's something that you could potentially, uh, I mean, we'll have to figure out what the, the actual name of them are, because I don't know if they call them the same thing over there. Um, but those might be things to add to your permaculture, your food forest area there. So... Awesome. And I like that you're seed saving. Um, that's something that's amazing to me. Is just how um, the seeds carry this innate knowledge um, to the the next generation, and I just think that's that's really cool.
1: Well, so think about how much information is stored in DNA, and that's just that's right there in the seeds. It knows what it can tolerate. Next time it grows, it goes, okay, you're going to get cold this this at this month, so you know, just don't <laughs> grow as many leaves as you did last time. Uh, <laughs> Even looking at some of the just seed saving that I've been doing, like um, I know you probably would have listened to one of Gets Red Peel episodes where it was talking about gifting and um right. and all-grown energy. I've I've started that myself. I'm doing that within my own local area, but I've been really cognizant about looking after bees in the environment and I've well been collecting seeds of native flowers, native um trees, bushes. I'm storing up just an old spice jar of a mix of seeds and I'm every time that I go out and gift I'm going to be spreading those seeds around in spring to try and get some natural growth as well try and keep that native bee populations going and more so flies here but they still pollinate so to get those numbers up and hopefully that has an impact.
0: I love that I'm going to start doing that too Drew thanks I love that suggestion um that's something that I seed save the butterfly pea flower. I told you about the butterfly pea flower. It makes magic tea and um, with all kinds of anti-inflammatory and antidepressant uh, properties, but um, it's this uh, beautiful blue, like aquamarine blue color that the tea, that the tea makes. And then you add the acid to it, like lemon or something like that. And then it turns bright pink, like the color of my shirt. Um, so it's like a really cool plant. Um, but for my, uh, yoga students, I started seed saving and I would bring them butterfly pea flower and, and seeds so that they could start those themselves. And the bees love that. I am also a beekeeper. I have, I have, a I have beehives out in the garden, but I love that. I'm going to start seed saving and, and um, just start sharing. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great idea. Um, because I do go so many random places. I'll just like be, they'll be like, what's that lady over there doing? Oh, she's just sowing some seeds. Yeah, <laughs> sowing some seeds.
1: Hey, you think about how much of our modern world, like within our area, it was traditionally all red gum forest. It was so thick and it was swamp in the inside. Everything's been knocked, the majority of trees have been knocked down for this area, of the valley where housing has gone up and industry and everywhere is just plain grass. Everywhere. like this, We have our little native gardens and spots and native attracting areas, but the majority of areas just grass on the side of the road. That's not maintained, it's not looked after. Why not sprinkle some seeds on there and get some colour going everywhere?
0: Exactly. I love that.
1: Uh, so if you were to tell any listeners what are what are five plants that are your go-to plants? I know it's going to be different for everyone around the world, depending on your climate and your growing zone. What are your five go-to plants? They could be uh, for food, medicinal, or just looking at like perennial flowers. What are your five go-to's?
0: Okay. Um, So my main focus in this um, uh, time of uh, concerns about food shortages and things like that, I'm trying to find plants to grow where every part of the plant is edible, Um, no waste. So I think uh, I talked about Seminole pumpkin. Seminole pumpkin is great because the pumpkins will last a long time. I mean, you're talking long-term storage. So if you're you're living in an area that does get like a harsh winter, you could grow the Seminole pumpkin um, during your summer, and then have food stored during the winter. The leaves you can cook the the leaves of pretty much any pumpkin or squash. You saute them like a spinach. Um, th- sometimes they're you know those leaves are a little fuzzy, but the fuzziness goes away when you saute them. Um, and so you can eat the leaves of the the pumpkin plants, and then um, but these vining pumpkins, I grow them up on a trellis, and that kind of helps with the pest pressure, and so seminal pumpkins or any kind of like binding pumpkin, number one. Number two, um, Asian winged bean. Asian winged bean um, is not a traditional green bean, um, but it's similar. And um, it's kind of like a star-shaped bean. It's a pod that's about that long. Extremely, extremely prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the bean itself, uh, I like to saute it. Um, to, to chop it. So each, when you chop the, the winged bean, um, because it's like a five-pointed bean, the slices look like stars. So it's a really pretty presentation when you cook it. And then the leaves are also edible. Um, so those are two. Um, eggplant, eggplant uh, is very uh, prolific for me here. Um, it's a nightshade, so you cannot eat the, the leaves of the, the eggplant, um, but it's pretty good for storage and um, just tasty. Uh, so that's one, two, three. Number four, I know that some people are going to turn their nose up at this, but turnips, um, I think turnips are a great um, food for, uh, particularly for this time of concern. Because again, every part of the food, uh, every part of the plant is edible. You can harvest the greens as the root is growing. And um, the greens are, are fantastic, cooked with butter or lard or um, ham. It's a very Southern thing. I, I've, I've lived in the South, my, the South of the U.S. my whole life. Um, and then the roots, I think the roots um, get a bad rap. A lot of people think that they're bitter and they don't um, appreciate the taste. Um, but we make fries in the air fryer. I make, um, like almost like a, a potato mash out of, out of the root and it, it'll pick up the flavor of garlic or, you know, um, any kind of herbs that you're putting with it. So, and, um, one of the things that I'm concerned with, with all of the green shortages and the rising prices is being able to feed my animals because I have rabbits and chickens and goats, Um, So I'm always looking for things that I can grow in the garden that I can feed them. And the turnips are a great food for for all of those different animals. Um, They can basically forage on um, the turnips. And then I think the third food um, for me is sweet potato or yams. Again, another plant where every part of the plant is edible. Uh, The roots are good for long-term storage and um with that both the the sweet potato and the seminal pumpkin you can it lends itself to both savory and sweet dishes so you can make desserts um, as well as as the the savory dishes so um, i think those are my top 5 drew what about you uh, i'm
1: a mix of perennial flowers and and what you would consider standard growing options number 1 is kangaroo's paw, which is a native australian grassing flower has a tubular colored flower at the end in multiple varieties of colors now because humans have got a hold of them and grown certain strains and different mm. types but it has a furry little tube to it which actually looks like a kangaroo's foot hence named kangaroos oh. or really good for native bees um, perennial flowers all year great bit of color for the gun next would be apple trees i think apple trees are hugely underrated and apple trees and then lemons and limes would be third it's funny, you see all the housing around our area and anything that was from the boomer generation or prior, everyone has an apple tree and a lemon tree in their backyard. And okay. I think that really proved that, that there was self-sufficiency prior to industrialisation on a mass scale and we're missing out on free food. Uh, fourth would be potato. I can't help but love potato. It must be the Irish that's in me. Uh, and <laughs> last one would be climbing beans. Just because you could, they're so adaptable. And I, I took this from what I've learned about North American um, growing of food within Indian culture of the three sisters: squash, right. climbing beans, and corn. Perfect combination. Oh. And anyone can have climbing beans anywhere. It's you put a little stake in, a little climbing frame. If you have a another plant nearby that it can attach itself to, it's one of those just perfect plants, and it actually helps with the soil and pH balance as well, which is great. So they'd be my five
0: that's true. You know that because they're, they're nitrogen fixing. Um, Have you ever grown um, the, what is it? Uh, The Chinese noodle beans. No, I haven't. Okay. So um, I mean, you know, like I like to uh, experiment with weird foods. And so um, this week you probably saw my Instagram. I have like the four foot long um, cozy squash uh, that I grew and like each one of those squash, like half of the squash makes like an entire meal. Um, But the Chinese red, there's Chinese red noodle beans and Chinese green noodle beans, but they grow these beans that are probably two feet long. (laughs) So, um, and they're really pretty. And so I usually grow green ones and red ones. And so you can, um, when you, when you cook them for friends or family, they make a really nice presentation because you can kind of, Like um, you can twirl them up like you would like a pasta or spaghetti, or you can serve them just, you know, cut the long way. Um, But those, those are really fun. You should see if they, if you can um, source some seeds for those in your area, Uh, because it's just a fun novelty and they do, you know, they do grow up on a trellis. Are they traditional?
1: um, Are they like a traditional bean where they have that type of girth or depth to them? Or are they a bit wider?
0: They are, they're about the same as a regular traditional bean. Um, and you know, they have, uh, the only thing is like, they don't lend themselves as like a lot of people, you know, they just, they'll, they'll just boil up some beans. I think that they're more of an Asian, um, Asian cuisine. They lend themselves more to an Asian cuisine. So I would like stir fry them and, or saute them rather than like cut them up and, and boil them up in a pot.
1: Fantastic all right i'm going to ask you one of our our closing questions for today but we can keep going i'm going to do the four to one thing which is something that teachers do in australia quite a bit is four positives and one negative so pumping up the positives and acknowledging the negatives but not really giving it too much attention which i think we've had far too much negative in the past two years agreed if you were to think about your journey during lockdown um or COVID over the past two years what are the four positives you found in your personal growth over the past two and a half years and the one negative
0: okay so I I personally think that um that people by and large and it was going to sound crazy and there's going to be people who will disagree with me but I think people by and large have improved their lot during during lockdown in many ways. Um, so for me, I think the four positives um, would be uh, devoting work time to things at home, um, eating at home, drinking at home, my husband and I, and I, I can't, I can't answer anything simply without a whole explanation. But um, my husband and I, dear, before lockdown, um, probably three or four nights a week, we would um, meet up after my yoga class and we would go have a beer at the bar. We would talk to our bartender. And then in, during lockdown, we weren't able to do that. So we set up these red Adirondack chairs out by our pond and that became our our, our bar um, our where we would go and wind down for the evening. So we would take our beers out there, um, and we would end up with a cat or a chicken on our laps as we we sat by the pond and, and, and wind down. <laughs> um, so I, and then, you know, cooking from home, um, you know, making meals at home, just spending more time at home. So number one. Number two, like remote work. You know, a lot of times there's absolutely no reason that we have to drive to an office. I mean, you do because you have students, but, um, you know, there were so many Times that I I would find myself like why do I have to go in why I don't have any court today why do I have to go in drive into an office um, to sit in this place to get dressed put makeup on do my hair um, when all I'm going to do is sit here and read transcripts or go over police reports or whatever the case may be so I mean I think remote work is um, a fantastic addition <laughs> that we learned during lockdown this um, being able to I mean. And what other time would you and I be able to have a conversation face-to-face from Australia and the U.S.? Uh, And so I think that that lockdown kind of brought people from far away together. Uh, So how many is that? That's three or four? That's three. Three. Okay. So um, just kind of bridging the gap between communities. Um, four, I think learning more about, um, who people really are at their essence. <laughs> so, and that's not a bad thing. Um, I think during, uh, all the things that have happened since COVID people have shown kind of their, their true colors. And so we know who are the freedom minded people and who aren't. And I think that's an important thing to know. Um, negative, um, in the same way that COVID and the lockdowns brought people together, um, like you and I being able to talk across um, <laughs> across the ocean. Um, it also drove people apart. Um, you know, like I said, before COVID, I was teaching nine yoga classes. I was deeply connecting with people. All the time, and then after COVID, you know, there's people that, um, you know, kind of they they don't come out anymore. They're they're, fear. I'm gonna take that back. I'm gonna take that back. I'm gonna erase that. The worst thing that came out of lockdown was fear, and um, and I think that that's where so many people are operating from now. Um, Instead of of being red pilled or white pilled, so many people are black pilled, and um, they just they're afraid to go out. They're afraid, um, you know, to make their own decisions, um, about what's best for them personally, medically. (laughs) And, um, you know, now I think, I think they're just pumping us with fear, you know, fear about food shortages, fear about baby formula shortages. Um, and people don't realize that they have a choice, um, that they, they don't have to be bound to the matrix they they just need to start learning to think outside the box but they're paralyzed by fear and I think fear is the worst thing that came out of the last two years
1: absolutely um the fear levels as we know were just it was pumped 24 7 five days a week yeah 365 days a year for a long time there and I don't think anyone got away from that unscathed we all took that on board in some some manner um you're absolutely right but the positives that came out of it I think definitely outweigh the negatives no matter what's happened for me my flaw would be first being like you said it put life into perspective for a lot of people and you're seeing that there's a mass exodus from a lot of careers and workforces at the moment because people don't want to be tied down to that nine to five they realize that life isn't working five days a week and having two days off if you were to go to Vegas and have a, a five to two odds you wouldn't bet would you it's pretty terrible <laughs> odds so definitely put things in perspective for the longest time I was re- really career orientated um so first one thing it put my life and work balance into perspective second one it was helped me realize my career path wasn't going the way for my own personal growth as it should be for the longest time I was on track to move up into a principal position. I was going away doing PD, professional development around that era, extra training, work outside of work hours, burning the candle at both ends just to make sure that I could be into that position and, and step up and climb that corporate ladder, so to speak. And it's really redirected me to understand that I'm not actually enjoying this. I'm not in the classroom with my students. This isn't what I want. It's far too political and I don't like it. And help me redirect Back to my original passion, which was I've always been a bit of an artist. I've loved drawing, I've loved painting, and it allowed me to step foot into it into a specialist arts role where I teach art to kids from preparatory school all the way through to year six. So that's been great. I've been the happiest I have been in years in that role. So that's great for me. My career's taken a, a better turn. Um, it's given me a- I
0: forgot about your art. I forgot about your art. You're very talented. you've shared some of that, and it may, that's why we like each other because um, I also fancy myself as a, a little bit of an artist, but I do not have the talent that you do. So.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> but I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're coming back to that. that.'s yeah. Good to hear.
1: Uh, third would be it, it gave me that internal external understanding of my position in the world and the universe and where we are and what we're doing. Um, So it's always, they're all interleaving these positive things. Um, A fourth one, like you said, it's opened up the world to communication that has always been there for the past 10, 15 years, but we haven't really taken advantage of. We've got more people connecting more than ever. You look at the amount of podcasts are out now, there's literally like 10 million in the world, but (laughs) so many you can never listen to them all. Even the ones you like, you'd have to backlog and go through that's great we're connected we're talking to each other we found those positive people and people that we want to talk to which is great Uh, and the one negative thing for me which I'm always going to regret and that's that was my choice that I made and even though deep down I know it was the wrong choice I was coerced into taking the three beat groups and my wife was as well and that's something we're going to have to live with and we're trying different things to try and get ahead of it and prevent certain things from happening but at the end of the day it was a situation my state was in and we gladly had the or we, not gladly the state was the most locked down place in the world and had the harshest measures in the world which was the biggest negative for us that we were coerced into doing something by our employers and our career was on the line our lifestyle and unfortunately that we're in a stage of our life where we are so connected to the matrix or to the system that even starting what we're doing now is helping us detach from it but at that stage we really didn't have an option and I wish I could could have been a lot like Adam from Deborah gets red build and, and have that courage and ability to say no I'm not going to comply and and be able to move away but I don't think we we could have done it at that stage and maybe in five or ten years i realised realize that we could have but that was a decision that was made and that's the one negative from the past three years for me.
0: I'm sorry that you were put in that position. I mean, from here we were watching what was going on in your country, and you know it was just horrifying. Um, so I, I really do, um, I sympathize with you that you were put in in that in that space. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, it's, it wasn't. It was definitely wasn't the best time of life, but um, I, I feel really. I my heart really. It's saddened by the amount of good quality teachers, um, nurses, paramedics, police officers, all who have lost their careers and their livelihoods over something so trivial that should be your own bodily autonomy. But that's where we are in the world. If only we had uh, a constitution like America to support us a bit more, our constitution's very, very uh, lacklustre and and very grey in areas that can't really protect
0: us. My body, my choice until <laughs> yeah, until it's the government's choice <laughs> <laughs> oh that that does that does really stink um, so you I know you like to talk about cryptids
1: yeah that was that was uh that was where it all kind of started for me. I was a kid, I just loved the idea of the world being bigger and more amazing and at much mystical the, the, mystical, the imagination of things <laughs> as a child. I think really opens you up to it and I was the kid that went to the school library and borrowed books about Loch Ness and Bigfoot and Chupacabra and I can remember I was a, uh, I was a seven or eight and I got the day after Roswell as a kid as a, as a book and I was that weird kid that was reading that book and highlighting pages. Uh, that's where it started for me. I love the idea of cryptids and that there's, there's things out there in the world that are far more impressive and amazing than what we could ever perceive and I definitely think there are aspects out there that humans don't understand and will never be able to understand, and that's okay. Um, But acknowledging that they exist would be great. (laughs) There's definitely aspects (laughs) of the world that I think are are being hidden. That we don't know. And that's okay. And there's definitely, and people say it all the time, cover up, but you see it's it's so plain as day now knowing what we know about the world that certain things are being hidden from the the broader public.
0: Did you ever watch um do they have it over there uh it's a Christmas special Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer it was like um it's not claymation but um it's like not a cartoon a like the, Yeah
1: yeah 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 yeah
0: Have you so you know the yeti and yeah. and that I, when I was a child, I was absolutely terrified um, that the Yeti was going to come over the mountains. So I was living in North Carolina in the mountains at the time. And I was terrified that the Yeti was going to come over the mountains and get me. <laughs> 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 but here, here we have um, we have a skunk ape. Um, that's our local Florida cryptid um, that they'll see, people will see sightings of, of the skunk ape. And then um, also the Swamp Cabbage Boy. And so we're pretty convinced that the Swamp Cabbage Boy lives um, out in the area where where we live. Um, it's the kind of thing, like if I go running on our road at night, I mean, we live pretty far out. Um, and so I run by myself at night you'll start to hear footsteps running behind you oh. and we always say um we always say that the swamp cabbage boy you can smell him before you see him
1: so is, <laughs> is this you'll, sorry is this cryptid, is it supposed to be is it similar to a swamp ape or does it look completely different like a skunk ape it it
0: i don't know that it, it's more like um the the skunk ape um, the skunk ape is more like an ape-like creature that people see out in the woods in Florida. The swamp cabbage boy is more like a Bigfoot. Um, ah. And that's why we say that you can smell him before you see him because, you know, when there'll be like, um, you'll smell like a, a, a fetid swampy smell. Um that I think is coming from, from the fur. <laughs> uh, and so we always say that you can smell him before you see him. Um, but so those, those are the two around here that I know about. Um, I've our, never seen either one.
1: Oh, haven't you? In our area, like Australian broadly we've got the Yowie, which is the, the most prominent name in most Aboriginal cultures for the hairy man. We also have Quinkins, which are the Injim and Tamara. Um, the Imjim, which are the smaller ones, I'm seeing more and more connections with the North American Pugwaji, which is a smaller little person that attacks people in in, in Indian law and, and folklore. As a child, I was with my dad and his, a couple of his friends and they were chopping firewood up the bush where in winter we we're allowed to go into felling areas, chop a tree down and all that type of stuff. So I was helping moving logs of wood into the dad's ute with, with full drive and I went for a walk down one of these bush tracks and it's so vivid in my memory. I can remember walking and all the sounds of the bush just stopped. There was no lyrebirds, which mimic sounds and make all these different things. Bugs, everything absolutely stopped. I heard rustling in the bushes on one side of me of the track. And I can vividly remember like giggling, like little laughing sounds coming from different spots. And as soon as I got more heightened and freaked out as a kid, I heard it on the other side of me and giggling and laughing and things shaking and i just the instinct was to run and i bolted straight back to where dad and his mates were cutting up the firewood and for the longest time in my life i'm thinking was that my overactive imagination as a kid was it the australian lyrebird which actually mimics sounds or was it something else and to this liar day bird. yeah we've got a bird it a lyrebird it can like lyre
0: like l i a r
1: uh y l y so lyrebird oh, okay bird. uh it's it's a bird that mimics other birds, it mimics dogs, it mimics fire engines, um, sirens, everything. It can make all these things. But I'm, to, to this day, I'm convinced that it wasn't one of those because they can't actually mimic a person speaking. So I okay. think they wouldn't be able to mimic a laughing factor. So that was something that happened Even to a me. Even it... a
0: laughing kookaburra? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Very different. It was. It's almost like... You read about fae stories or the fairy folk in Northern Ireland or in, or in the UK about children disappearing in the forest and it's the, the fairies or the gnomes or the creatures playing tricks on children to take them away. That's what I liken it to. It, it was a laughter that seemed like they were having a good old time at my expense and that's, it put the biggest stilling of fear in me that made me run and that was, that was the thing that really got me on side of, yeah, these things are probably real
0: when I, when we lived in North Carolina, um, like I said, we lived uh, up in the mountains and at our house, there was a hill that went up uh, that went up and there was a, my parents were renting this home and up at the top of the hill, there was like a shed. And sometimes our dog would get out and it would um, be up at that shed. So I would go out and try to find the dog. And I, I can't, you know, like in my, my, my memory banks, I can't remember actually seeing, um, the fairy folk. Um, but I can remember the conversation that I came back and had with my parents multiple times after I would go up to the shed. And I can very vividly remember trying to explain to my parents about the little old man and woman, um, that lived in the shed. And they, uh, were, there was like, a like a wire spool, you know, like a spool that's about like that, that, that um, wire comes on. They were using that as a table. And I can remember, you know, trying to, you know, tell my parents, like, you know, the dog was up, you know, with the little man and woman that live up in the the shed. And they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) But I like in my, in my memory, like I can remember the conversation and my parents remember the conversation. um, But I can't remember actually seeing the, the fairy folk, but uh, the mountains of North Carolina are definitely known for the fairy folk. Now, in in Australia, isn't isn't there um, a cryptid that helps children?
1: Yeah, so that's the Tamara, which are, are t- like a tall, skinny, jet black um, humanoid creature. They help children, whereas the Imjim are the smaller, um, aggressive types that would kidnap and eat children, and the Tamara protect them. They're more of a, a forest spirit that would come out of cracks of trees and rock work because they're so skinny they protect children yeah
0: and so the engine is the one that you think that you saw with your dad trying to lure you away
1: I think so that or some kind of (laughs) forest entity of some kind I'm not too sure it's something that it um, still baffles me to this day it um it was definitely an experience
0: That's cool. It gives you a story to tell.
1: That's it. Uh, Do you think like going back to what you're saying, do you think that children are more open to seeing and perceiving things, the younger they are? And as we grow up, we almost close ourselves off to it or we naturally can't perceive it now. What do you think that is? Is it just the imagination of children or are they naturally more open to things?
0: We're going to, we're going to get back to the yoga. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that I, I think that as adults, we just we fill ourselves with so many distractions that we don't take time to see or hear anything around us. Um, but to your question, I believe a thousand percent that children are more able to sense those spirits. And um, I have some I have a lot of personal experience with things of a uh, paranormal nature um, you were talking about UFOs earlier. Um, I've lived, absolutely lived in a haunted house. Uh, so I definitely believe in many things, um, of the paranormal, but I'll give you an example. So, uh, when our daughter, she was, she was four, we were taking, um, I, have always had a fascination with the paranormal, and so I had done some, uh, gone to some lectures with some local ghost hunters in the community where we were living, and, um, at one of the lectures, they were talking about, um, this, uh, home in a neighboring community called the Herlong Mansion, and, during uh there was a festival in the town and during the festival they would open up the herlong mansion for like tours and things like that so i mean i had heard all about the ghost um it was a, a family they had i think seven children uh mary john inez i can't remember the other children's names those are the ones that i can remember and um when the patriarch of the family died there was um strife between the children over who would inherit the house and um ultimately one of the i think it was inez uh inherited the house and uh, but she lost the relationship with all of her siblings because you know she sued them in court to to get the house and and so after she passed she was said to um to haunt the Herlock Mansion. And there was lots of stories um, from people who would do future construction work there about about the haunting. And so we went, when the during the festival, we took the tour and um, it's it's open as a bed and breakfast and each of the rooms is named after one of the children. So there's Mary's room and Inez's room and John's room. And um, each of the children have a room named after them. And so I knew that Inez was the ghost that haunted the house from the stories that I learned in these lectures. And um, so before we started the tour, the current owner, um, you know, gave us a little talk and, you know, uh, talked about the fact that one of the rooms was haunted. And, you know, after you do the tour, then come back and see if you can figure out which room was haunted. So um, we, you know, it's it's all decked out in antique furniture and things like that. So, um, we were going into all of the rooms and we go to John's room and my daughter walks in. She's four. You know, she looks all around, you know, oh, this is pretty. That is pretty. Um, we go into Inez's room. Oh, this is pretty. That is pretty. Um, we go to Mary's room and she literally stops at the threshold. will not cross into the room. Um, she just stops and I'm like, come on in the, the, it was a beautiful room it had a canopy bed, a really gorgeous mirror. And I'm like, come on in, you know, l- you know, look in this room. And she was like, Nope, I'm not going in. And nothing we could do could persuade her to come across the threshold of that room. And so after the tour, we go down and the owner was like, well, you know, were you able to tell which room is haunted? <laughs> And I was like, well, you know, I said, I know that Inez is the ghost that haunts this place. I'm like, but my daughter refused to go into Mary's room. And he's like, well, he's like, that's because, um, Mary's room is the room where Inez was born and where Inez died and Inez haunts Mary's room. (laughs) So, So, um, you know, that was my first, um, kind of real experience Um, You know, it was something that she was able to pick up on, I think, because she, you know, doesn't have all the external, um, you know, trappings, and, and inputs that we do, and she was absolutely able to pick up on whatever that spirit was, (laughs) where, you know, the rest of us were oblivious to it. So I do think that children have uh, a more innate ability to sense those things than than we do. But I think it's, I think it's both things you you mentioned um you know just that it's conditioned out of us i mean we're, we're taught to be muggles and not yeah, to believe uh, in magic we've self-domesticated
1: <laughs> ourselves as a species essentially haven't we yes
0: we have so i i want to stay open to the mystery though so that's kind of where i want to be in life <laughs> to be ready to experience all of the weird things
1: and what a great way to live to close our show off if you could say, what is the point of personal growth? Like from your journey and what we've heard from you, you've had amazing personal growth in careers, family, uh, self-sufficiency, homesteading, growth from a kid who was eating mac and cheese and hot dogs and things at the baseball park to now. What do you think is the point of personal growth?
0: Um, I think that... Um we have to try all the things. Uh, it goes back to fear. I think people are paralyzed by fear a lot of times in my yoga class, especially if I'm working on that solar plexus chakra, that willpower motivation um, energy um, I'll ask people to think about something that they've wanted to try. Um, I'll then call on them to ask you know what's what's stopping them from doing that? Um, you know, is it fear of failure? Is it fear of success? Is it just not knowing the first step to take? And so for me, I want to try all the things. I don't, I don't want to leave this life um, wondering if I would have been able to be successful at something. I don't think any of us have to um, be married to one career uh, for our whole lives I don't think we have to start one thing and retire and that thing I think that personal growth means trying things even when you're afraid and just taking the first step it's that whole um, what is it is it Einstein's law of, of uh, relativity you know or thermodynamics uh, things that um, are in motion tend to stay in motion take the first step. It gets the ball rolling and makes the next step easier once you've taken that first step. So for me, personal growth is about trying the things. And so what if you fail? I mean, literally what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You fail, you pick up, you know, you've learned a life lesson and you know, to start something different. And so for me, that's personal growth. Try all the things.
1: Perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. Like you said, yeah, it's People forget the personal aspect. It is personal growth. People conflate personal growth with professional growth far too often. It's I've got to be better. But what does better mean for you as a person? And personally, being the next step up or the run on the corporate ladder or having the next brand new car or the next house, that's not personal growth. Those are things that you can can get, yes, and you might improve your financial situation, but you haven't improved personally as a person. And where it comes back to what you said about experiences if experiences make you a better person and you're happy and you're doing it, that's worth far more at the end of the day than what the next two-story house is or the next brand new Lamborghini. You've grown as a person, your life experiences are there and you're not bogged down and weighed down by all the other things and factors that contribute to to the stress and the fear in our lives. True. All right.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, So where can people find you or follow you? if they want to get in touch
0: well one of the things that i have been wanting to start um as as if i don't have enough things going on but i am starting um, a podcast and it's going to be exactly about what we've just talked about trying the new things um and so it's going to be called Dirty Hands. So at Dirty Hands podcast on Instagram, you can follow my personal page where I post all of my gardening things at Apple Jacks Farm and it's J-A-Q-U-E-S at Apple Jacks Farm on Instagram. Um, but the Dirty Hands podcast is going to be me talking to other people about things that they are doing. Um, to be self-sustaining on their own. So, uh, so far I have someone lined up um, permaculture, uh, home birth, uh, making your own pet food, um, starting your own animal colonies. Um, And so I'm just gonna be talking to people about things that they know how to do that I don't yet know how to do. And hopefully we could all learn something new together by getting in there and getting our hands dirty.
1: Sounds amazing! I'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that and and hopefully jump on board one day. All that's
0: right, that's right. Well, you'll have to come on and 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 teach us how to do something.
1: <laughs> hopefully, I can.
0: Lanny Lanny has volunteered to come in and talk about her passion for minting. So I, I do have that one lined up too. So
1: perfect! You've already got the ball rolling. It's once that's you right. start an Instagram and you join this uh, community, it's a it's a bit of a gateway, isn't it? Just, everyone ends up on a podcast. <laughs> it's,
0: it's a gateway drug. <laughs>
1: All right, that was our second episode for You're Missing the Point. Thank you, Tammy, for joining us today. I am Drew Misson at You're Missing the Point. You can find me on Podbean and iTunes and you can find me on my Instagram, Missing the Point. Thank you, everybody, and I'll see you next time.
0: Hey, everybody, it's closing time. You don't got to go home, but you can't stay here.